Hello and welcome to the CAV Podcast. You're listening to the second episode of a two-part podcast series looking at the value of new technologies for the profession. That was the title of the CAV's Centenary Scholarship Report, produced by Simon Haley, who joins us again today. Simon, welcome back. Uh, In the previous episode, Simon, you gave a really useful introduction to your report. You explained what is meant by new technology and why valuers and their clients should be embracing the technological revolution, which, as you say in your report, is taking place right now. Uh, And if you haven't already listened to that episode, you can find it on the CAV website and all the major podcast platforms. It's listed as episode 22. The focus of that episode was very much on the role of technology in clients' businesses. But today, we want to turn our attention to the value of new technologies to valuers and their firms. And Simon, that's very much the opening question of this podcast. What is the value of all of this to the profession? Thank you, Alid, and and thanks for having me back. And I trust you've read all 35,000 words of the report yourself, (laughs) (laughs) religiously, (laughs) every single one. Um, Yeah, excellent start to to this podcast, I think. What is the value to the profession? And I'll I'll just spell that out. What I mean by the profession is those of us who are working in any shape or form in that professional advisory capacity for our clients' better interests, you know, whether that is helping them develop their business forward, whether that's helping them tackle a problem, or whether that's providing just general management advice and being the person who's their troubleshooter at the end of the phone. Because in essence, the use of technology to help in any of those roles will only survive, Alid, as part of that service if it is what the client thinks that it is still worth paying for, if that makes sense. So there are practical solutions. There are perfect solutions. There's new technologies where we can be more entrepreneurial. We can couple it with better use of data and integrated thinking and develop really competitive strategies between individual firms, individual valuers, how we project ourselves in a certain region or area to be the firm that knows about a certain theme of technology or an aspect of technology however fundamentally if the client thinks it's not worth paying for they can't see the value themselves in it we might say what's the point i i I think let's take a step back from that though those firms who are more innovative more interested more willing to develop services within their business per se, and I know I'm being very kind of general here and and business isn't always that black and white depending on individual subjective competencies um, and interests and and flavours, you know, um, within, within and between colleagues. But those firms are the ones who are going to look to integrate technology into their business more. Perhaps. That's my opinion anyway. Let me explain that even further. Okay. Technology is an ever-present in our professional lives. I think we can all agree on that. We would struggle to perform our roles without it. For those of you who might be listening to this thinking, no way, you know, I don't have a smartphone. 
I, I've not used an app before. I'm not taking iPads out to clients. You know, um, you know, I like my notepad and pen. You know, well, my response there is, well, surely you're sending emails. You know, and and I'm not I'm not being facetious there, Alid, or, or 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 very blunt or simplistic. Email would be classed as a technology, perhaps not a new technology in this present day and age, but at some point that was a new technology. At some point, sending a fax was a new technology. Obviously, as we touched on in the first episode, the COVID pandemic has perhaps accelerated the digital adoption by some of those firms and individuals as they pivot towards flexible and remote working more. But I think firms are faced with a choice now about adoption or adaptation. And, um, you know, where does that value lie? And, and, you know, I'm sure you'll ask me a question following on from this, but I think businesses have a choice of three pathways at the moment, depending on where they sit with their relationship with technology as of now, as of today, as of the point of you listening to this podcast. The first pathway is that of validation. This is where your firm or you as an individual practitioner have already started to adopt those new technologies. You are already comfortable with the hastening of that pace of change that we all saw from last March onwards and that you feel generally happy about technology being something that you will be happy to integrate further and would offer value to your professional role. The second pathway, Alid, is perhaps the wide range of firms who have really had a big reality check in the last 12 months since last March. Technology and COVID has let them know actually they can't rest on their laurels. Those traditional ways of working were perfectly fine and still will be perfectly fine, but is just fine good enough? Perhaps now they've had that wake-up call that they do need to continue to innovate and strategize more and think about how integration of technology can help them compete better or enhance their operations further. Um, but, But fundamentally, pathway one or pathway two are not negatives. You know, they're, they're positive in some shape or form. Technology's there. Let's learn how we can kind of work alongside it rather than always thinking it's going to replace a physical member of staff or it's going to um, be a bit of a, a time-consuming exercise to get on top of. However, the third route is even more of a wake-up call, perhaps. These are individuals and firms, Alid, who have steadfastly refused to date to see any change within their working practice and that hopefully now see the perils of if they continue to do that without any discernible change will be completely left behind. Maybe not in 2021, maybe not in 2022, but certainly the next decade up to 2030, we will see cloud-based technologies dominate. We will see Internet of Things sensors dominate. We will see an even greater focus on data and data management, as we covered off in the last podcast. Those those competencies will develop. Our confidences will improve. And firms need to be asking themselves that fundamental point now. Which pathway am I on and which pathway would I like to be on? 
Uh, and can you provide any examples from your research of, of pieces of technology or systems or software that can make businesses more efficient or the work of valuers more efficient? Because that's going to be the focus. How can the profession adopt some technologies in their own day-to-day business that's going to make them either more competitive, lower their their, their costs potentially, but or, or provide a better service, a more rounded service to their clients? Yeah, well, there's two there's two points there, um, Alad, I want to pick up on. The first, which I'll come on to in a second, is um, within the report at the appendix, there is an illustration of a data strategy for firms perhaps wanting to integrate drone technologies into their business. So this is perhaps a um, pathway forward where valuers can devise an appropriate strategy to pay dividends over the time frame of thinking, how do we not only introduce the use of drones within our business, but then develop the competency to others to say that we are a recognised expert in that professional field of how that can add value to your business. So, for example, if that's around uh, 3D mapping services of buildings and terrains, allowing aerial images that drones take to then be formatted further to present a 3D model of that topography and, in effect, a digital twin of that physical asset, that is something that is above and beyond, Alid, just simply purchasing a drone to go out and take nice pictures of what crops might look like or what um, risk assessments or or building condition surveys might look like if it helps with health and safety risks, for example. Not saying that wouldn't be a perfectly acceptable use of that drone within your professional services matrix anyway, but we're always trying to look what's next, what's added value from there. You know, we now, uh, I think, understand, you know, certainly on the property services sphere, if we're thinking about property viewings, it's great to have a live video tour. You know, there's now firms that are offering virtual reality tours where perhaps land registry title boundaries have been overlaid on 3D aerial pictures or where um, information that's gathered by the drone can then be integrated with algorithms who can better detect crop growth deficiencies, building inspection defects, or offer better opportunities to identify those. Having a structure and having a plan, though, is always the best way to go about it because it then gives increased visibility of how that can either unlock additional value or help people seek out opportunities for further optimization within that. So, so this could very much see firms developing new technology-based services to clients, adding value in different ways, uh, building upon some of their core service areas, but by, by, by adding to that and, and seeking uh, ways of, of offering more services to, to, to clients and businesses that they work with. Interestingly, does that then lead to a requirement of potentially new skills within the profession? This report fits very much firmly within the work the CAV has been doing around future skills. But but even taking it a step further, could could this open up the profession to potentially new people from different backgrounds with different skill sets entirely being drawn to the profession? Could, could this be an opportunity to, to try and attract 
talent uh, into the profession, new talent, different perspectives, different types of people, possibly? I, I would I would say so, absolutely. But I will qualify that, Aled, by, by also saying, um, you know, as well as attracting new talent from outside the industry in, why can't we also develop those external skill sets from within the industry out, if that makes sense? So I'll, I'll come on to explain what I mean by that in a second. Take a step back, as you say, the CAV Future Skills Programme is there to assist members and through them their clients in how to manage the coming change going forwards. We need emotional skills, we need communication skills, and we need technology skills. Those that will be able to implement and build upon those will see increased emphasis around that skills development in perhaps data analytics, in perhaps client interactions, but also about what that new normal might look like, Alid, in our relationship with new technologies. You know, COVID and, and recent months, technology has forced us all to question everything we do and whether perhaps the previous ways of working were always the right ways of going about it. And certainly when we start to think about um, um, the, the future of the office, the future of who our colleagues might be, the future of recruitment in that respect, yes, the starting point is thinking, right, are we happy with the lack of or, or enhanced flexibility that we might now see? And obviously, the adoption to those new attitudes takes time. Are firms going to be happy to revert straight away back to their previous way of working? Or are they going to take more of a hybrid model of saying, yeah, you know, we're happy people can work from the office, they can work from home, um, as long as they get the job done and they collate those hours uh, in their contract over the course of the week, that's fine by us. Um, Or are they going to be a little bit more rigid still? about refining those professional um, boundaries. Um, So there are a number of new technology tools, but obviously the new skill sets, as we've mentioned there, the likely long-term outcome, certainly when thinking perhaps about recruitment matters, which I've covered in my report, is that perhaps cognitive flexibility is something that needs to be developed a lot further. And what I mean by that is critical thinking, the ability to have an opinion, not just to say what our clients think we should be saying in that respect. You know, if we can think, you know, even over the next 12, 18 months, complex problem solving, leadership, uh, systems analysis and evaluation, they are going to be better skills that are needed within businesses rather than simply um, what we've always done, um, thinking that's still the best way to go about it. Now, at what point does a value a firm decide it needs to employ a data programmer as much as perhaps it needs to employ a graduate surveyor or an ecologist to throw into the mix to bolster and broaden its range of professional services? Do we need science graduates within our rural businesses? Do we need technology graduates? Do we need an overlap of those skills? Um, there's various studies, Alid, within my report and, and, uh, and other firms' um, approaches to how these workforce skills will shift that I've covered. Um, and I don't think we should accept it as a, 
as an obvious question of it's technology will simply mean it's reallocation or replacement. I think we can raise skill sets of current staff. We can offer training alongside. We can redeploy certain people in better areas of the business. But we need to have that agility. We need to think what are those traditional barriers at the moment to perhaps recruitment within the profession and how do we go about changing that? How do we go about reinforcing that or re-enhancing that? And the new business mantra shouldn't always look like it's looked before. And that might mean that the likes of the traditional agricultural universities and colleges we need to expand our horizons beyond those as to who might offer value to our professional business in the future. But having agile working practices in place, that might might help indeed with recruitment. And you've got an entire chapter within your report looking at the future of the office. Tell us a bit more about your thinking around, you know, what does the future office look like? Um, Well, let me start Um, with an answer to that question, I think from the context of promotion. People, and and I mean our our clients, let's say in in this respect, when I say people, want to understand that we are open for business. Does that necessarily mean, Alid, that should always be a nine to five, Monday to Friday impression of what that business offers as a service? So in terms of thinking about the wider perception of our brand, The future of the office is something that needs to be agile and recognize that if it is displaying and promoting itself on the internet, on social media, that is what the brand perception is to the majority of people. Now, they may be existing clients. They may be new clients. It might be a different audience who is getting an impression of your business. But having that authenticity online is very, very important. It's imperative. Um, If we are showcasing properties, because that's a service that we have within our professional firm, why are you not on Instagram? If you want to be facilitating conversations on topical matters, exchanging opinion with others around the world, whether they're um, colleagues or clients or just anyone else within the industry, why are you not on Twitter? If you're wanting to share professional insight and knowledge with your peers and contacts and to show others you're a thought leader and voice of authority, why are you not on LinkedIn? Now, again, I'm not saying that everyone should have a social media platform, but it kind of follows on from having a website. We are there to be seen online. We are there to show that we are open for business and projecting that mindset of simply being a Monday to Friday, nine to five business. For the new client, and I say perhaps that in the context of the new generation of clients coming through, we've grown up with that understanding that it's a lot more difficult to switch off from technology all the time. Having WhatsApp, having other apps on our phone for communication blurs the boundaries between personal life and professional life. Some of us send emails whilst we're on holiday, whether that's on the beach, on the ski slopes. The new business mantra by and expected by clients, I, I should say, is one of agility and promptness. So when we're thinking about the future of the office, um, Alid, I think we need to be 
showing our clients that we are open to adopting more flexible practices. Now, that flexibility might be around when we actually do the work, and, and whether that's at weekends, whether that's in the evenings, whether that's just in that traditional nine to five mindset, but also about where we do that work from. And obviously, one of the big things that we've all seen over the past 12 months is how easy uh, or perhaps how um, uh, um, how good it is that we can integrate it into our daily lives by actually now doing a lot of our traditional visits or meetings that we might have had with clients or tasks for them over video conferencing facilities now. You know, we can all easily jump on a Zoom or a Teams call and share our screens and see our clients and not necessarily have to sit in the car for hours during a day or racking up lots of business miles. We can be more flexible in our in terms of our mental health, our physical health, but also in our efficiencies. Alid, even if I am on the in the car between clients, I could be listening to this podcast, for example. If I'm going for a run, I could be listening to this podcast. If I'm watching um, or listening into a webinar over lunchtime uh, for CPV purposes or just for wider background context on a particular topic, I can still be writing a report or sending emails or doing something different. It gives us that ability to perhaps be in two places at once, to perhaps be better at multitasking. Now, I'm not saying we should always do that. There's still merit in absolutely being focused on a specific task in hand. And I'm sure we can come on to the aspect of how technology might be negative in terms of allowing complacency to creep in or or corners to be cut. But for me, the future of the office is one where new technologies and new flexibilities are now more commonplace as an option to use within your professional mindset and the range of services, not something that's not previously been considered at all. And I also think that the experiences of the past 12 months have taught us ways of becoming more productive, sometimes as valuers and as professionals, because we can conduct an awful lot of business without necessarily jumping in the car and and incurring huge business expense. But we need to find that that balance between the two. But interesting, but before we were recording, we, we were chatting, weren't we, Simon, about the constant and common theme in all conversations that we're having with fellow professionals is just simply how busy everybody seems to be at the moment. And we do tend to fill in our diaries with almost back-to-back video calls or, 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 or digital meetings. And it tends to, it's flagged up the question in my mind, are we becoming too flexible and too agile? And is it almost um, creating, technology creating a time management challenge for us? Uh, Whilst technology can help us manage and do more, does it potentially demand too much of us because we are becoming too accessible? What's your thoughts on that? Yeah, excellent point, um, Aled. I I think we can all agree there is no one size fits all approach to technology um it comes back to your subjective definition of where you see the value from it it works in different ways for different people and for different outcomes for some it might be a positive and useful way of getting better enjoyment from a certain scenario 
or better productivity, better creativity, better relaxation. When we're thinking about it in a professional context, we obviously want to think, can technology help us refine a given service? Can we utilize our time better? Or can we think of ways we can add value to existing and new services for clients? I wouldn't want to think, though, that straight away people are thinking, this is great. If I can automate a lot of different tasks, it means I don't need to put the same level of effort or same level of thinking in. That's grand. The algorithm's done the work for me. I can just press send on the report without checking it. I think that's quite dangerous, Elid, if we start going down that route, because cutting corners and trusting algorithms perhaps is something that we're not quite there or comfortable in doing yet. For a lot of people, they haven't even started using any of these range of technologies like some of the list I described in the first podcast. Um, and, and obviously, one of the points I made in episode one was that fear often plays a major role for people in either their avoidance of or aversion to technology. I would suggest that's probably a stance that a lot of people should still take. Um, and I know that sound that might sound quite disingenuous for a report that is trying to extol the virtues and values of new technologies. And But fundamentally, I think whether we're thinking about um, uh, data regulation, whether we're thinking about data protection, whether we're thinking about intellectual property in that respect, firms need to think at the end of the day, if we send the wrong information out, if we cut corners, if we do not do a professional job, what might that look like in terms of risk to reputation, risk to value? risk to revenue in that respect. If we jump in too far and too soon into how we use technology, absolutely it can have very far wide ranging consequences with that. We have problems and challenges anyway in how we think we might be able to integrate it for clients. Fundamentally, we don't all deal with the same client Some will be in different sectors, some will be different ages, some will have different um, personal viewpoints on technology in the first place anyway. Um, And it's important to acknowledge that context around the use of technology for certain sizes of farms. What might be more readily available and, and give value? What might take more time to get to that point? But caution needs to be um, kind of highlighted very much so because without it, um, we might start getting ourselves into trouble um, sharing people's data when we don't have permission to do so, trusting algorithms where they might not have been tested properly, using various aspects of technology where we don't understand them and then leaves our, leave ourselves open to others taking advantage of that. And, and maybe a really easy um, example to demonstrate that is just cybersecurity in general. Do we use um, virtual private networks um, within, our, within our office? When we are going to a hotel or a meeting room in a public in a public place, uh, maybe to, to, to be efficient between client visits or just for a change of scenery, are we aware who else in that room 
that might be connecting to the same public Wi-Fi network could potentially access some of the data that's held on our laptop or on our systems if we don't understand how to lock that down properly. Um, that needs to be stressed very much so rather than thinking it's completely fine, it's completely positive, and everyone's going into it with um, very much altruistic outcomes. Now, I'd like to raise a point and pick up on an earlier point that you made around marketing and promotion, where you highlighted the importance of having a digital presence as well as a physical presence in your traditional offices. But we've all seen how valuable and how effective social media can be in marketing and promoting and putting yourself or your firm out there, as it were. But you make the point, and there's a section in your report talking about this in terms of if you spend time promoting your services on these various social media platforms, it's making sure that you have a return on that investment or, as you phrase it here, a return on conversation. Tell us a bit more about that. Uh, excellent, excellent identification in the report there, Alid, of that phrase, because that actually um, is a seven-year-old uh, phrase that I came up with in 2013 um, uh, when I was writing my dissertation for my postgraduate degree, thinking about the use of social media and digital media at that time. Again, similar starting points. Where's the value in all of this? And Sometimes our efforts in terms of our time expended on some of these um, different forms of promotion, different forms of technology, getting up to speed with all of these things isn't considered, but probably should be. Um, return on conversation, what I mean by that is if you are going to have a presence on any of these social networking sites, make sure you're doing it for a particular reason. Do you know you are on the right platform because your clients are there or potentially um, a new client audience is there? Are you going on a particular platform because you want to share thought leadership and be seen as someone who is knowledgeable on certain topics? Too often, Alid, activity on the internet simply results in, in people sharing information in various bubbles and echo chambers. People don't pick up on it. Uh, it limits others' ability to consider external points of view outside of their own sphere. Social media, for me, should be seen as part of that wider communication strategy anyway, i.e. not just done in isolation, and absolutely needs a commercial mindset where it is used for developing relationships rather than trying to push sales. I would say to anyone listening to this podcast that is in charge of social media for your professional firm if you are doing it to try and get sales you are on the wrong path straight away you cannot sell on social media because those people who are your audience who are listening to you who decide to follow you or your page will just switch off or block or, or become disinterested and go elsewhere a lot of people are saying the same things and the same information how are you going to stand out for me you can't please everyone. It's not a quick fix. It has to be a long-term um, um, thing where you're developing those relationships. But you are there to invest time to populate these digital plat platforms and maintain a presence on there rather than thinking, well, I'll go hell for leather 
for a couple of months about activity because I've got a show or an event or a webinar coming up and then I'll go silent. People don't like that. They want repetition. They want to develop a relationship. They want to see and develop trust. So you are what you are selling on social media in effect. You are your own brand. If you are not responsive, if you are not helpful, if you are not active, then people are going to take that impression that that's what your business operates in the same manner in the offline world, i.e. the physical world, as well as your presence online. So fundamentally, you need to have that authenticity. So, so essentially, uh, I guess the secret is is trying to create engaging content on social media, which isn't the hard sell. Es- essentially, if people are drawn in by by the content that you create, then the sales will follow. And, and it's not being too much in your face is, is the way of, of going about some of, of the promotional activities. And it's really interesting to, to, to see uh, and read up on some of your insights on that. But Coming to, to the end of your report, and in all fairness, it's th- over 35,000 words in length. A lot of time and effort has gone into this. This is not something you want to sit on a shelf and gather dust. You want this to be a springboard for action, inspiration, and, and discussion. And you've listed a number of recommendations right at the very end of the report. Perhaps you can talk through some of the key highlights. What do you think you want to this report to to help change or or how do you think valuers and and businesses can can use some of the really useful insights here to to make some positive um changes to 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 their profession going forward okay yeah thanks alid for for the leading into that so so firstly i'll i'll come back to the starting point of of why i wanted to do um a scholarship paper on this subject in the first place we are there to frame questions for people to encourage them to think about some of these new topics, some of these new points of conversation, some of these new professional um, um, themes that might impact on some of our work and take their own answers forward. I've tried to write my paper in effect like a green paper would be written, where I have, Alid, the uh, the benefit of asking questions, but perhaps not necessarily always knowing the answers to them, um, if that makes sense. So some of my recommendations are framed around the core constructs and contexts that I've set out in the report, but I'm not saying that I have all the answers as to what an individual or an individual firm should do. But if we go down the chapter of recommendations, I'll try and set out how I think this report and from this point in time, we should be going forwards thinking, right, the rest of 2021 and 2022 and beyond to the new environmental land management scheme in 2025 and then beyond there to the end of this decade to 2030, how can we be more intelligent about the interoperability of technology and also the integration of technology, again, to use this phrase, so it becomes part of our tool shed of value offerings to clients. So I know I left the previous uh, podcast episode with a number of questions. What will we be doing as valuers and for whom over the next few years? And why will this work be important? And where should we focus our efforts And then when might these skills be needed? Number one, we've talked about 
various skill sets. To me, that's part of that lifelong learning. We don't just sit an exam, think we know it all, and then don't need to adapt or evolve from there. This profession is a moving feast. It is an absolutely fascinating industry to work in. There are so many areas of opportunity at the moment, whether we're thinking about natural capital and ecosystem services, whether we're thinking about data management strategies, whether we're thinking about how we could incorporate AI and automation and cloud technology into some of our businesses going forwards. Fundamentally, this is a report about change. And I want some people to read it to think my behaviour or my attitude not just to new technologies, but about working practices in general might also need to change. It's change across our profession. It's change across the many market sectors and economies that we advise and support. But it's also about how we are responding to this change, Alid. And coming back to that aspect you said about return on conversation, return on investment, we hopefully want to be able to sit down and write a strategy that we can say, yes, I think that is a useful addition to our business to now offer land mapping services, drone mapping services, to go into um, um, uh, testing some of these IoT sensors on some of our client farms, because we're going to offer now data interpretation services uh, to clients. Obviously, there's going to be a cost to all of this that can't be ignored or discounted. But like I said at the top of the episode, it's only going to be the clients who still see the value in these new services who are going to be happy to pay for them and take these forward. In terms of actual individual recommendations, Alid, I've split these down into what valuers should do and then also perhaps what the CAAV can do. Um, in terms of taking this report forward. So let's go down through what valuers might be able to do to allow a broader understanding and absorption of this report and its technology focus. Number one, and you should be doing this fundamentally, hopefully for your business anyway, in terms of having a business plan over the next 12 months, two years, five years or whatever, devise a strategy around new technology alongside that whether it's around data, whether it's around communications, whether it's around actual investment in various technologies to enable your, to, to enable your firm to, to perhaps um, add to its matrix of services it's offer, it offers. Get comfortable with their application and use. As I identified, there'll be some firms who are already a lot further along that pathway than others. There's no better time like the present to actually be purchasing some of this equipment and technology and trialing it and trying it out before it gets offered wider or you decide to go public and raise awareness that it's within your arsenal to do so. Think about how those new advisory and consultancy skill sets could give you competitive advantage over other firms and individuals. Um, now, that might be about, around recruiting for certain specialised skill sets, as we discussed, whether it's computer science or environmental modelling, or simply that it is a business that could offer jobs beyond those traditional university routes, always from a Harper Adams or a Sirencester 
or a Reading or a Newcastle University in that respect. Um, how do we encourage knowledge exchange and learning better? How do we encourage others to share promotion better? Same as you asked the question in episode one, Aled, about if we if we encourage our clients to approach to to approach data with an open mindset, with a sharing mindset, I'm encouraging professionals to do the same with their knowledge and capabilities. I want to be going on LinkedIn, for example, or to be going and opening the wider farming press to see people giving their own professional opinions around the future of the roadmap, around clients being used as case studies and in showcasing the range of advice and tech being offered um, that others can take confidence from. If we can show that we are either the local or regional contact, uh, an expert on on matters of technology, it will raise the game and raise other people's expectations within the industry a lot quicker and a lot easier rather than if it's just a few individuals happy to raise their head above the parapet um, um, and others don't see the value from it. So the second um, set of recommendations um, that I've put in my report is how perhaps the CAV or more specifically the Future Skills Working Group within the CAV should then put in place a set of actions to take this report as, as a standpoint um, to then work with others, um, whether it's other professional membership bodies, whether it's the press, whether it's DEFRA and the government itself to take it forward. So as I've said there, perhaps from this initial um, scholarship paper, um, we then develop other discussion papers internally around aspects that you've asked me about, Alid, and that have come up within the paper that perhaps needs more wider consideration around professional ethics, for example, around around some of these emerging technologies and breaking down their definitions even further so it's more easy to understand than perhaps even I've been able to describe. Hopefully that would encapsulate the report's findings and recommendations in a more digestible format. I certainly think the CAV can help to develop a leadership role for other industry bodies and become a leading voice um, on this in its own right. And, and why not? You know, we, we, we know that there's a number of papers that the RICS have written and that DEFRA are interested in about technology. Uh, certainly one of the um, members of the Future Skills Working Group, Davina Fillingham, uh, wrote an excellent Nuffield uh, farming scholarship paper around these topics of precision farming and new technologies as well, maybe before her time in doing that a few years ago, but that should come back to the fore. And and certainly the points Davina was making are still relevant there as well. We've got new grant schemes, Alid, being released from this autumn. Um, the Farming Investment Fund, which will have the Farming Equipment Fund and the Farming Transformation Fund within that. Is that an ideal opportunity for the CAV to take a lobbying voice on aspects of this technology scholarship paper now to hopefully influence what aspects or items of equipment and technology should perhaps be on that grant handbook list when we get to that point later in the year and over the next couple of years going forwards. Um, and also um, for me, which, which I'm really interested in and, and, and more than happy to be involved in taking this forward as well, actually organizing workshops and training events for CAV members across the rest of this year and beyond about the essence of this subject matter 
whether it's a webinar, whether it's an in-person event, whether it's more of a Q&A discussion forum, but something that people can 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 take these 35,000 words, Alid, and break it down into much more manageable chunks. I mean, I am, I am in no um, um, doubt that it is a long read for people. A lot of people won't sit there and read it from cover to cover. I've tried to design the report that you can look at chapters in isolation. You can read the exact summary in isolation. You can link between chapters depending on your personal interests um, and obviously we've got this two-part episode um, uh, of these podcasts which are hopefully giving people a different format to um, take in some of the themes and flavors of the report as well um, but fundamentally this should not be the end of this conversation Alid hopefully this conversation can be taken forward now around technology taken forward with more confidence whether it is around data proprietary interests whether it is around blockchain capabilities whether it's around communication skills training and CPD training programs and as I'm sure with your Nuffield um, scholarship paper as well, Alid, um, surely the final recommendation has to be that someone else should now do further research on the topic to identify some of the gaps in my reporting um, and, and and how it can be taken forward further. I'm, I'm certainly not averse to going visiting countries around the world if, if, if that's needed. I'm happy to take one for the team in that respect. But I think 35,000 words is probably enough um, at this stage for my uh, for my uh, involvement on the matter. <laughs> <laughs> well, Simon, can I thank you for, for joining us on this podcast? And can I also congratulate you on producing this report, which has so much valuable information crammed in it. And as you mentioned, you, you've tried to structure it in such a way where people can dip in and dip out. And hopefully these two podcast episodes have been a help to highlight some of the key themes that have been going through. And you've had a lot of support through that two-year journey in producing this this piece of work and I'm sure as you have acknowledged in the report the support of not only family members but the the Future Skills Working Group Committee members chaired by Andrew Coney and indeed the, the very close support you've had from Jeremy Moody the secretary and advisor to, to the CAV and the CAV is proud of this report and uh, pleased very much to see that this is now published and available for people to digest and uh, hopefully provide a, a trigger potentially or a stimulus to to have that conversation and to consider what role technology has to play in adding value to what they do uh, and the future of the profession. Simon Haley, thank you very much. Thank you. Don't forget, you can view Simon's full report on the CAV website in the resources section. And that's all from us today. On behalf of Simon Haley and myself, Alid Jones, thank you very much for listening. The CAV will be releasing more podcasts with professional updates very soon, and we look forward to your company once again. All the best. <laughs>